Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I'm here with Pastor Zorro. Uh, oh, that's right. I can I can make up nicknames for people too. Uh, so I think from now on, I'm going to try to come up with something that starts with Z uh, every time I have to introduce Pastor Zarling at the beginning of the show. All right, that should be fun. I'm waiting for that. Uh, but I, you know, now, now I need to be creative. Um, but today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6 through 10. We left off last time uh, right at the beginning of Jesus' ser- Sermon on the Mount, uh, and this is chapter 6 and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. It's 5, 6, and 7, but today we're going to look at 6 and 7. Uh, and where we left off with was talking about the Ten Commandments and really how the Sermon on the Mount is a lot of law. Uh, there, there's quite a bit where uh, Jesus really burns people for uh, the way that uh, they think that they've kept the law just by outwardly uh, showing obedience to it, even if inwardly their hearts are not in it. And that's that's kind of a theme for the whole sermon, I would say. Yeah, of doing something, but uh, their heart isn't in it, we would call that a hypocrite. And Jesus calls people hypocrites in verse 2, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, as they just uh, perform acts of mercy so they get the reward here on earth. And I don't know, Jeremy, if you've had people say this to you, you know, when you invite them to church and they say, well, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And what I always tell them is, well, you're exactly right. And that's why you should come because there's always room for one more. Exactly. It, you're right. It is full of hypocrites. We're all people who like to put on masks, so to speak, and, and put up a, a false front that kind of hides uh, our most vulnerable or uh, uh, most embarrassing and shameful things. And there's, that, there's good reason for that sometimes. That's important to be safe and not just be open to everybody. But when uh, it gets to the point like Jesus describes in the sermon, that's when you need to really examine your heart and repent. And the first example that he gives, uh, this was actually the text that I was assigned when I was over in the uh, seminary in uh, Leipzig, Germany. Uh, I was studying all our seminary classes in German. It was just one semester, but one of the classes was for writing sermons, and it was actually pre-seminary class of sermon writing uh, where the final assignment wasn't really a sermon, it was a devotion. You had to write a devotion, and it was obviously, I had to write this in German, uh, and so that was an added challenge for me. But then um, uh, this was the text, and I remember um, talking in this uh, uh, talking in this text about, well, if Jesus says that um, you should not even uh, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you drop your money into the collection box or donate to charity, well, then really maybe what you should do is uh, build a secret passage from outside the church into the sanctuary, and then in the middle of the night, uh, go into your secret passage and uh, uh, drop off your offering for church when nobody could possibly see you. Uh, and, and really what Jesus is getting at, the point here is, even if you do that, it's impossible to let to do something without your other body parts knowing what you're doing. And, and our sinful pride is going to want to grab onto that and turn it into a reason to uh, pat ourselves on the back. And then with that theme of sinful pride, he continues on with... Uh, acting like hypocrites in the way we pray. He says you might stand there babbling like uh, the heathens and just talking. 
And you might just stand out there like the, the Pharisees out in the synagogues or outside the synagogue so that everyone can see you. And he doesn't want just vain repetition. And this is why uh, you know, we'll teach on the, the order of service, the liturgy. I'm doing that the next four Sundays as we prepare to receive the new Christian worship hymnal here at Water of Life. And one of the things I'll be teaching on is the prayers, that the prayer of the day uh, is very ancient, that the prayer of the church isn't just the pastor getting up there and babbling or saying an ex corde prayer from his heart, as nice as that is, it's a written prayer. And then we add special requests to it because we want to be uh, official. We want to have an, a good order, Paul says. And then Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and it's not, uh, it's to be a substitute for the Pharisees who spoke long and wordy prayers expecting to be heard just because they said so much. And the Lord's Prayer isn't a magical incantation that we just have to say in every worship service and in every day in school. Otherwise, it's not a valid worship service. It's not a good school day. The reason we pray this prayer is because it's a model for all of our other prayers. What was interesting, uh, when I first uh, was in the ministry, uh, what, 15, 10 years ago, um, there was, uh, I, I would teach at a grade school that was kind of a, a coordinated effort of a bunch of our Wells churches. Uh, and so I, I, it wasn't, ho- the, it wasn't um, built on our campus. So I was kind of a visiting pastor. Uh, and, and so not only did I have my own members, children in the catechism class, I also had all of the seventh uh, and eighth graders who went to other non-Lutheran churches uh, as well. And so I would assign them memory work. And when we get into the catechism to the part of the Lord's Prayer, I would ask them, uh, okay, well, go ahead. And I always asked, should you, you know, which, which one do you say at your church, the old version or the new version? And I would say, whatever you say at your church, that's the one I want you to memorize. And except maybe one time, except for one time, maybe with one exception, there was uh, all of those non-Lutheran students said, we don't say the Lord's Prayer at our church. Oh. And uh, I asked my dad about that one time, and I said, uh, do we have to say the Lord's Prayer? And he said, his answer was, or in worship, do we have to say the Lord's Prayer in worship, or ever, I guess. Uh, and he said, no, but why would you want to give it up? Right. Uh, there's really no good reason. And uh, uh, so, I mean, we could we could spend a lot of time digging into each one of these petitions, but I think what I'll do is just focus on the one about uh, forgive us our debts, because that's what Jesus then comes back to after he finishes the Lord's Prayer in verses 14 and 15. Um, th- it is true that um, if you are unforgiving toward people, you, you just can't uh, even find the desire in your heart to be forgiving, that uh, you don't truly have an understanding of God's forgiveness. And uh, when you don't understand God's forgiveness, that means you haven't received it. And then he goes on to talk about fasting. And fasting is a good thing still today. Uh, you know, the, the meal that we have in the morning, we call it breaking the fast, uh, a breakfast. And uh, but Jesus says, fasting is a good thing, but don't be mournful and sorrowful and putting ashes all over yourself. He says, anoint yourself with oil. Take a shower, put on some cologne and some perfume 
and make yourself joyful so no one knows that you're fasting. So whenever you're doing something for the Lord, don't let people know what you're doing. It's kind of like uh, the opposite of, you know, I've got a friend of mine uh, who does CrossFit. He's very much into CrossFit. But I don't know, Jeremy, if you know people who do CrossFit, because if they do CrossFit, you know that they do CrossFit. They're they can't not, stop talking about they it. They can't stop talking about it. All right. That's, that's not what he's talking about here, is uh, if you're fasting, if you're mournful and so forth, great. Keep going with that. But don't let people know that you're doing it. it the, the, maybe the best way to apply this uh, admonition that Jesus gives about fasting is um, th- let's not even make it about food. It, it could be about anything where you think, I don't want this to control me. I need to deny myself. And uh, a, a really good way to do that would be with food to say, I'm going to take a little break from just stuffing my face all the time. Uh, but uh, it really, it applies to anything. I, I don't want to be mastered by anything. Uh, and that kind of leads into the next section on uh, treasures that uh, Jesus talks about storing up treasures uh, in, in a non-physical realm. Yeah, and then he goes on with, with those treasures. Uh, he talks about, no, you can't serve both God and mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic term for worldly wealth and property. Uh, I've written articles for Bread for Beggars uh, using artwork in the past, and one of the articles was mammon. It was about a statue that just represented all gods. Uh, and, and Luther writes about that in, uh, in his commandment with this too, of mammon is a god, a god that is our materialism. And uh, I don't know if you have anything on that before we go on to worry. Well, no, I, I think uh, the two tie into each other very well. It, I always like to say uh, when I'm preaching on this, um, if you don't really quite get what mammon is, just think of another M word that we have in the English language, materialism. Uh, whatever your material, you know, it could be money, it, but it's really anything that is your commodity. It's your uh, 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 favorite way to you know, deal with things or, or have, you know, stock up on. Um, and, and then you get into the stocking up that happens with uh, the birds of the air. Do they, uh, and, and this is kind of where you sort of see that Jesus has a good sense of humor uh, because he, as he's preaching here, it's, it's almost comical to think about, well, there's the little bird who uh, it, it looks through his catalog of seeds and, uh, oh, does he, does he hop on his John Deere tractor and plow up his field? Oh, wait, no, that doesn't happen. That's not how the birds eat. And, and if you have this gift from God where you can plan ahead and, and buy your groceries, uh, that shows you God is going to care for you uh, much more even than he does for the birds of the air. And then he goes on with talking about something that really troubles a lot of people. I talked to a bunch of people already this week in my counseling sessions, in my shut-in visits, uh, visiting a family that was grieving the loss of their son. Worry. Uh, And the word translated in verse 27, a moment. Which of you can add a single moment to his lifespan by worrying? That word moment is literally a cubit. And a cubit is the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. Uh, and when it's applied in this text, it means a lifespan. A lifespan. So it's a, a brief unit, unit of time. So he's saying, which of you can add a single moment, a single lifespan, a single uh, 
group of time to your lifespan by worrying. Uh, You can't. And he's getting at worrying can't change anything. That's what I was telling a couple of families this week is my standard teaching on worry is why worry about the things you can change. If you can change them, then change them. And then why worry about the things you can't change? You can't change them. So you give it all over to God. And they go, well, I know. It's just so easy to say, but it's just hard to give give up. Well, it's a sin. And give up that sin and give it to God. Trust that he's in control. That's the key here. In fact, uh, not only does worrying not add moments to your life, uh, I think medical science can show us that um, stressing and, and being anxious or, or feeding on your anxiety actually shortens your lifespan. It's bad for your health. Um, and so uh, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Uh, that just means that the, what you should really worry about, if anything, is how can I get more of the uh, kingship, the ruling power of God in my heart, and how can I get more of the righteousness of Christ uh, through forgiveness uh, by faith in his word uh, in my mind. Um, chapter 7 uh, sort of plays off the theme of worrying because here, here's what I think happens with people in chapter 7 is uh, another cause of worry is we, we say about each other, uh, well, I really worry about so-and-so because, uh, you know, they have this bad habit or something like that. And uh, that's... Uh, that's kind of a, a roundabout way of gossiping about them or maybe even pointing out their flaws so that you don't have to feel as bad about your own uh, character shortcomings. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, stop judging. Uh, you've got enough problems to fix in your own life. Uh, pull the huge beam of wood out of your own eye before you pick a speck of sawdust out of someone else's. And yet I think that verse more than almost any other verse in scripture, Jeremy, is taken out of context. I, I heard it a couple times this week from people. I was listening to a Candace Owens podcast, and she was talking to someone who disagreed with her in everything, and he said, and he said he was a Christian. He said, we're, we're called not to judge other people. Is that what this is saying? We can't judge other people? Yeah, think of the implications of that. You are never to make a judgment call about anything in your life. Uh, you couldn't function anymore. You could never make a decision again because that is actually, if it's an absolute, unmitigated uh, uh, prohibition of making judgment calls, then, um, then you may as well stop existing. <laughs> yeah. Stop judging or you're going to be judged isn't meaning that we can't ever judge other people. That's our job. As dads, we need to judge our, our, uh, your sons, my daughter's actions, whether they're right or wrong. As pastors, we need to judge whether someone has committed sin and then is repentant and then can receive forgiveness. Uh, last night, I roughed a soccer game and uh, one of the uh, boys, uh, he got upset. He was hurt and he's, he was a little guy and he just he felt he was getting beat up and he yelled at me. And I said, I blew the whistle. And I said, you got to relax, son. It, was, it wasn't a foul. Well, after the game, the dad came over with the son. I went, oh, my goodness. And the dad said, uh, my son's here to apologize to you. Oh. So he pulled him over and he apologized. And I said, hey, I know what it's like to play soccer and be the little guy and get, felt, feel like it gets pushed around, but you're, you're a really good player. You're playing hard. 
And he said, thanks. And his dad said, no, he just thanked you. You need to look him in the face and then listen to him and say thank you. And as we were walking away, I complimented the dad and, you know, being a good dad. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he was, he was judging me as a dad sitting on the sideline taking my whistle, my words and actions in the kindest possible way. Hmm. But he very easily could have said, uh, like, there was another time I heard him say this, that one of the kids on his team fell down and he was crying because he got cleated. And I heard the dad say, it was an accident. Get up and get playing. Hmm. Now, and it was an accident. Mm-hmm. And But again, he could have judged improperly. That's what Jesus is warning against saying he was trying, the other player was trying to hurt his teammate. Jumping to conclusions. conclusions. No, you take words and actions in the kindest possible way. But when there is sin, you got to judge and point out that sin. Uh, speaking of passages that get misused, um, in verse 6 of chapter 7, uh, I once heard this one talked about to suggest that uh, maybe we don't need to do such aggressive evangelism work. <laughs> Because uh, there are so many people out there that reject the gospel, uh, and and somebody pointed out, doesn't Jesus say that we shouldn't throw your pearls before pigs? Uh, so uh, maybe we need to just cool down our evangelism work and and stop uh, trying to share the gospel so uh, wholeheartedly. Um, uh, no, Jesus is talking here about people who have repeatedly made it clear that they will not listen to the gospel. Um, it, and, and yeah, then maybe that does come to that point in a certain community that you would have to say, I'm sorry, we, we can't, uh, I don't know if this would apply to your, uh, mission board activity, but, uh, after a while you have to say, uh, there, they really aren't appreciating the God, the pure gospel in this region. Um, and Jesus does say not to throw our pearls before pigs. Yeah. And talking about the mission board, one of the guys that we had called to serve us here at water of life. He's in a mission congregation out east, and he did say, this is hard, uh, a hard mission field. You, know, you can imagine lots of rocks, lots of weeds, and so forth. Out east, they just have no interest in the gospel. And so, yeah, it, it might be uh, that's a harder ground. The dogs and pigs out there is in Jesus' terms. And then throwing the pearls before before swine. Maybe we can't. Maybe we can't really afford to make use of our resources there yeah. anymore. But but that's a hard discussion and a hard decision to make. But until it's made clear to you, you keep sharing the gospel. Yeah. And and to that, uh, last week I was working on some mission work down in Indianapolis area. I talked about that in the last podcast. And there, our mission board is saying, "Hey, we had two Wells churches inside of Indianapolis." a couple of two decades ago when they both closed and we still have two other churches on the north end and south end of Indianapolis this is a place where lutheranism has done well uh and so let's go back into that area because it's not throwing the pearls before swine uh, and while we're talking about persistence that that ties into the next thing Jesus said keep praying Uh, Keep asking and it will be given to you. Um, This is one of my favorite sections to point out that uh, I don't really see a lot of Bible passages where God says he will say no to the prayer of a believer. Um, He might say, wait, or maybe later, uh, maybe you won't get it until the new heavens and the new earth, and then you'll finally receive what you've been asking for. But 
what he says over and over is, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it will be opened for you. Uh, and then he repeats it. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Um, uh, th- there are a bunch of little uh, gems throughout this uh, chapter 7 that, that we could spend all day talking about. Um, did you have any that in particular you wanted well, to touch on? Yeah, the watching out for false prophets. Uh, we know that they're, they're out there and we recognize them by their fruit. But what is that fruit? How do we know that they're there? And, and there is, I was listening to another podcast uh, of some, some other pastors talking, and uh, they were talking about, you know, what should a member expect from their pastor and their church? And I think this is a way of also defining when you look elsewhere and you find false, false prophets, do they have law and gospel? Mm-hmm. Do they have the sacrament of baptism? Do they have uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Do they have an order of their worship service? Not that it has to be a Lutheran order of service, but an Is order. It orderly? Or just orderly, like Paul says. Uh, just some of those things. And if they do not have those things, then there is bad fruit. Then there are false prophets. The, the, the thing that Jesus says here for years, uh, even into my pastoral ministry, I have heard these words and never really got what, what was Jesus talking about when he said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. People do not, it's this part. Well, obviously their fruit is like you said, it's their sermons. Uh, it's not their life. I've heard people say it's their lifestyle. Like you have to look at a pastor's lifestyle and if he's a good person, that's the fruit of faith. Well, yeah, that's, that's, every Christian's fruit of faith, but for prophets in particular, their fruit that they produce is preaching. Uh, And so that's your point that you made. The point that I want to make is um, when Jesus says every good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. As a kid growing up, I always thought, I, I never realized I thought this, but in the back of my mind, I was thinking, Jesus, you're being so redundant. <laughs> Why are you saying things that are so obvious? Well, actually, it's because when it comes to preachers, it's not obvious. Uh, and here's what happens. People say, oh, you should really listen to this non-denominational preacher or, or you know, some kind of a Presbyterian or, or a Baptist uh, a minister that is really good. He's, he's some, or a televangelist, a megachurch pastor. He's got some really great things to say, and you should listen to this. But does he, uh, oh, and then they always, they always add on, uh, uh, well, you got to watch out for some of the other things that he says at other times, but this thing here is really good. Jesus is saying, well, if it's a bad tree, then that can't be good fruit that it's producing. Uh, if it's a if if it's a, a false teaching pastor, uh, that can't be good fruit that he's producing. And then also, what they also say is about Lutheran pastors. Uh, a lot of times I've heard maybe ones that don't have the most exciting sermons or aren't the most engaging in Bible class. They'll say, uh, uh, "Well, you know, old pastor so and so." Uh, well, you know, yeah, he taught true doctrine, but man, it was real slugfest to get through whatever, you know, sermon. Well, what they're saying is, okay, I guess he's a good tree, but he kind of produces bad fruit. Here, Jesus says, no, yep. no, did he, if he's a good tree, then he's producing good fruit. Yep. He can't be, that can't be a bad sermon. 
if it's coming from a good tree. Yeah, and you know, for my my writing style, my preaching, because I'm not so good in the original languages, I go and I listen to or read a lot of other guys' sermons, and yet uh, I've never gained anything from anyone who's not a Lutheran. I don't even try reading or listening to anything that they they say they preach, uh, and that goes to. I'm listening to a lot of different podcasts also with this book I'm writing with Christian Resistance. And one I've been interested in, he's talked a lot about resistance. And then I learned, oh, this guy's an anarchist. And that that kind of tainted the fruit so that I'm listening very carefully and, go, and then thinking, ah, do I even want to listen to the rest of this? Because I hmm. don't want to go down the wrong, you know, the, the wrong direction. Because the, the the roots of this tree are bad, I'm going to guess he he sounds, you know, very knowledgeable and he sounds great. Except if but, he's then, an un, if he's not a Christian and then he's going down this route, I don't want to go that that way. Even if it may sound very very Christian with what I'm writing, I don't want to get sucked in with all of this. And so I'm just using that as an analogy. Is we have to be very careful of who and what we're listening to. And it's not to say that when you get uh, an education at a secular institution that you're, you know, you have to have only Lutheran teachers who are teaching you about uh, biology or about the mechanics of, uh, you know, internal combustion or something like that. Um, and and uh, even when it comes to history or thing, uh, uh, language studies, uh, you can certainly pick up gems and, and bits and pieces of knowledge from various people of different beliefs. But uh, when it comes, finally, when it comes down to it, I think Jesus' sermon ends with a, a great picture of the house built on the rock versus the house built on the sand. Uh, as you get your education, whatever form it may take, if your foundation is built on uh, Christ and his forgiveness, then that is the bedrock that will make sure no matter what else you get educated in uh, that your faith won't crumble. And with that, I just want to end on this because your wife, Abby had texted me a week or so ago, asking me what my favorite hymn was. I was get, I'm guessing that they're going to add it to the worship service or the, uh, for my 25th anniversary in the ministry. And it's built on the rock, but not just the hymn version, it's the coin a version. So go on YouTube and, and listen to it. But I just wanted to, quote this first verse, because I love the imagery here that the church still stands, even when uh, church steeples are falling and spires uh, are crumbling, the bells still are chiming. It says, built on the rock, the church still stand, even when steeples are falling, crumbled have spires in every land, bells still are chiming and calling, calling the young and old to rest, but above all, the soul distressed, longing for rest everlasting. So that hymn goes on to recount how we are God's house of living stones and it remains standing because we're built on the foundation through the altar, the font, and the word of Christ. Have we uh, talked about the, have we covered the gospel of Luke in this podcast yet? We have not. Okay. I'm wondering why a lot of this has all been sounding so familiar, um, but uh, it's because we on this podcast have talked about Mark. We have. And so I'm wondering, just for the sake of time, uh, if you want to, uh, in chapter eight, skip over the parts that Mark's gospel covered, because we've we've talked about that pretty recently, Jesus healing the leper, uh, Jesus healing many, and then uh, what else is there? If you can remember which parts Mark mentions, that's fine. Well, it, it you gave me the uh, uh, 
EHV with it has it here. So oh. uh, I, I guess, yeah, I, I can direct us here. Okay. Um, uh, verses 5 through 13 uh, would be the first chunk to cover. Okay. We, we already talked about Jesus healing the leper last time we went through Mark. What, what so. is interesting, though, and this is why you compare the Gospels, is Mark says that this was in a house. Uh, not, not the leper. I'm sorry. I was thinking about the paralyzed man. That's coming up later. Go ahead. Oh, uh, it's, no. So we, we, I was going to skip the part about the leper and jump to the believing centurion. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is a, well, this also has some um, textual uh, difficulties, like I think you were, sounds you were going to talk about with being in a house, yeah. um, except this one is, uh, is this the one where the, um, the Jewish leaders come to him or the centurion himself comes to talk to Jesus and say, I'm not... Yeah, it, he says in verse eight, it's "I'm a, not worthy to yep. for you to come under my roof." Um, the centurion would be a, a Gentile, mm-hmm. and uh, so so yeah. How would you handle a, a difficulty where one gospel says it was the uh, Jewish leaders from Capernaum, and then another one says the centurion himself came from Capernaum and uh, asked for Jesus to heal his servant? Yeah, I guess I, without studying it more in depth, I would off the top of my head say, well. Maybe he sent the officials, but then he himself came, or he's saying that uh, the Holy Spirit is saying the centurion sent them, but Matthew says, interprets it as the centurion is there. But he, he's, he's speaking through them. Right. Yeah. And uh, of course, this shows you, Jesus compliments his faith that uh, the centurion says, I'm in charge of... Uh, soldiers, and they do whatever I tell them as soon as I give the order. Uh, Jesus, you're in charge of everything. You can heal this illness even from a long distance. Um, so this is this is kind of the Jesus long distance miracle here. And I had never thought of it this way until I started studying it this week, is that these three miracles that Matthew records in chapter 8, uh, he's he's doing it for people who would be considered less than the Jews. You know, he has them healing the man with the leprosy. So he's going to be excluded from uh, the rest of society. Uh, He is excluded from the synagogue and the temple and so forth. Then healing for the centurion servant. The centurion is a Gentile. If he, you know, he's a Gentile believer, but again, he can't go into the temple. And then you have Peter's mother-in-law, and even though Jewish women were honored, members of Jewish society, there were still big distinctions between men and women. And I never thought of those, that correlation of putting those three miracles together. That, that is a neat uh, way to tie it up. Um, I also wanted to throw in that uh, I, don't, I've ne- I don't think I've ever seen this in an English hymnal or prayer book, but uh, in, in a lot of German prayers or German hymnals, you have the exact same wording as a prayer for preparing to take communion, uh, that you say the same prayer as the centurion said to Jesus here, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, uh, except when you are preparing for communion, the, the German thought was, uh, I'm about to take Jesus under the roof of my mouth, and I'm not worthy to do that. And that is a, a, a great comfort then to say, uh, but only say the word and my ser- and your servant will be healed. Uh, in other words, Jesus, you've told me to come and take communion, uh, and this is going to heal me. Uh, the, the next section that uh, 
Luke's gospel, but not Mark's would cover, would be uh, starting with verse 18. Jesus saw a large crowd gathering around him. He gave orders to go over to the other shore. And then he has an expert in the law who wants to uh, follow him wherever he goes. And uh, Jesus says, uh, I'm not sure you know what you're signing on for. Yeah. And he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And thinking about that, again, you know, I've been in the ministry 25 years and never had this thought until this week of, uh, I knew Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. But think of that in relation to the beginning of his life and the end of his life. That at the beginning of his life, Jesus is laid in a borrowed manger. Uh, throughout his ministry, he's staying in a borrowed house, a borrowed bed, using a borrowed pillow. And then at his death, he's using a probably a cross that had been used many times. And then he's laid in a borrowed tomb. And then throughout his life, you see this uh, statement coming true that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head unless it's someplace borrowed. Uh, yeah, he he became like us in every way. We're As human beings, we're constantly needing to... In fact, even if you are independently wealthy and own your own property and don't have any debt, uh, you're still living on God's earth. <laughs> We are constantly needing to borrow from God in order to stay alive. And uh, what an honor and an undeserved blessing that Jesus made himself like us, that uh, he he put himself in the position of a a borrower. And then he was in the boat sleeping. And why was he sleeping? Well, it's proving that he is, that he is human, but it's also God, that he has control uh, this is the calm that you witness in a commanding officer in the military, uh, the, the calmness that Jesus has in the storm. With this commanding officer, when the bullets are flying and the bombs are blowing, that commander remains calm. And Jesus is the commander of his angelic army. He's faced off against the ancient serpent and his demonic forces. He has control of the situation. He remains calm. And his calm demeanor should lead us to trust in him when everything seems to be going to H-E double hockey sticks. Just uh, wanted to apologize for that little ding. Um, one of our listeners was uh, sending, sending a text message and I forgot to just turn my uh, sound off. So um, now, now, when we, now when you hear this recording, you, you can know you made an appearance on the podcast. Um, I'm jumping to chapter 9, and uh, actually I'm going to jump way into chapter 9, because all of these things have been covered by Mark in his gospel, uh, the two demon-possessed men, the Jesus forgiving sins. Um, uh, This, I think, may have been the part you were talking about before with uh, the man on the stretcher, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, what's interesting there is that Mark says that this took place in a home, Matthew, if you just read Matthew on its own, it seems like he's out in the open. And that's why you take the two Gospels and you compare them. And, and you, get, you get a better picture uh, from more than one witness. Um, Matthew sort of signs his own autograph. This is the part where I wanted to say Matthew signs his own autograph. Uh, Jesus walked up to his tax collector's booth and said, follow me. Uh, but I'm going to breeze past that, breeze past the question about fasting and the daughter of Jairus. Uh, It looks like the next part that maybe is uh, independent for Matthew is uh, starting with verse 27 of chapter 9, two blind men. 
uh, again, you could wrestle a little bit with the textual question of uh, the other gospels have talked about one blind man calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And here it says two, uh, but instead of uh, signing on with the critics of the Bible who say this obviously shows a mistake, you could you could find an explanation for it. Something like, uh, well, I guess the other gospel writers only wanted to report one blind man, whereas uh, Matthew reports two. And it's not that one is true and the other is false. It's that one gives more details than the other. And then right at the end... Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion because they were troubled and downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. And that term downcast means to means thrown down and lying on the ground helpless. Shepherds have used this English term for a sheep that's lying upside down and can't get up. Now, that was kind of interesting imagery there, a sheep that's upside down and can't get up. Or I watched a video of this. I want to show this sometime on a Good Shepherd Sunday when I'm doing the children's devotion. It was a, a young boy, probably about 10, that found one of his sheep caught in a, in a crack in the ground. It was wide enough for that sheep to have just fallen into, you know, so like three feet wide. It was helpless, couldn't get out. So the, the little boy reached down, got the sheep up, it started running and jumping on either side of this crevice, and then fell in again. And, and was stuck. But that's us. We are downcast, whether we're stuck or we're upside down. And the Lord sees us and he flips us over. These are the, we're the kinds of people he's come for. And then the last part there, he says, uh, pray that the harvest, that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Uh, this is something that I we just called a pastor to come and serve us here as our pastor of growth and outreach at Water of Life, and and I let him know that where he's at, uh, you know, it's a smaller town. There's still opportunities for the gospel, but there's ninety thousand people in Racine alone, let alone Mount Pleasant and Sturdivant and and elsewhere, and you know there are families to reach out to just in our. Grade school, our, your high school, uh, Hope School, and so forth, there's a ripe mission field right here. But one of the issues is we have to get our own people working in our congregations, but we also have to get our own people to give up their sons to become pastors because uh, we need more laborers in the harvest field. And it is a true sacrifice, giving giving up. Um, I mean, you could think of Hannah uh, bringing uh, little Samuel to work in the tabernacle. Um, I know that uh, parents who have sent their children away to Luther Prep or the prep schools in uh, Saginaw, Michigan, or Watertown, Wisconsin, or Prairie du Chien, or other places before that, um, that that can be a that can feel like a big sacrifice, uh, but. The thing is, it goes back to what I was saying before about prayer. Uh, when Jesus says, ask, he doesn't mean ask and uh, maybe I'll give it to you. He means ask and I will give it to you. Uh, and here too, he, he gives you another prayer to say, ask for workers. Uh, and then he gives you proof, or Matthew uh, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about the proof in the very next chapter of um, giving workers to harvest in his field. And uh, what 
kind of struck me after you were talking about parents giving up their children is uh, this is how they are uh, referenced in verse 2, uh, the, the apostles, James uh, and John, the son of Zebedee. Uh, so there's there's a focus there on the the parents who had to uh, give up workers in their family business, uh, say goodbye to their sons, uh, so that they could follow Christ and preach His message. And you know what message does uh, is given to the messengers of today and the disciples of Jesus' day? It's the same message that Jesus was preaching. It's the same message that John the Baptist gave. It was the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, that was the message I gave to our uh, voters uh, Wednesday night. We had a voters meeting that we had a, a vote on uh, ordering the new hymnal, uh, replacing some furnaces, calling a second pastor. So a lot of things going on. And I just said that we're gro- going through some growing pains right now in our congregation. Just like if you were a family and you took on some new kids, you adopted them. There's going to be growing pains as you adjust to new people in the family. Or if you're a business owner and you take on another business and bring it in, there's going to be growing pains as you learn to adapt. Well, it's the same thing in a congregation where you have two people, two congregations that were separate for all of their existence and now together as one. There's growing pains. I did say the benefit is that we at least like each other. You know, there are other churches that are merging that don't, uh, the people don't always like each other. But I, I base the devotion on this text. The kingdom of heaven is near. Whenever we get uptight or we begin worrying or we uh, get focused on finances or buildings or whatever it is, we have to remember what we're doing and why we're doing it and for whom. It's the kingdom of God. And when we have that in our long range view, all this other stuff that we allow ourselves to get worked up about, it doesn't really matter. I, I think uh, the entirety of chapter 10, uh, we could take it in a lot of different directions. Uh, one thing that strikes me off the top of my head is um, this is a lot of instruction about how the apostles are to carry out the ministry of the gospel. And that kind of reminds me about um, just just the sheer length of this chapter uh, it, it sort of reflects in my mind the way that we make it such a long stinking process to become a pastor. Yes. <laughs> that uh, you, you go to four years of uh, college and then four more years of seminary, and uh, even then you're barely ready to uh, take on a congregation. Um, and and this is sort of what you see Jesus doing. He 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 wants to tell them a lot and really get them prepared uh, because there there are going to be a lot of things they need uh, to be equipped for this this work. Um, I, I think we again there's so much we could get into with each of these. Did you have certain points you wanted to focus on? Well, verse fourteen and fifteen again he says you know there are going to be people that aren't going to listen to you. So shake the dust off your feet, move on to the next town. You know, that uh, some pastors have asked, as our church body has said, hey, we're going to start uh, 100 new missions over the next 10 years. And pastors have asked, where are those pastors going to come from? And I snidely have said, well, we're going to close your church and (laughs) use you somewhere else. But sadly, that may be a reality, as we have to close some of these churches where they're just a handful of members, uh, and they're just hanging on. And maybe use that that pastor somewhere else. We shake the dust off of our feet. We thank God and the saints there 
for the faithful service of those saints for decades or maybe even over a century. But now maybe we can use that manpower and money elsewhere. And Jesus says there's going to be places that are going to reject him. And he says, it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. And I just brought up of Sodom and Gomorrah because I remember reading an article the other week uh, that some experts have found uh, where Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in Genesis chapter 19. And it said that uh, the evidence they found is like that a meteor strike had hit. And a meteor strike a thousand times more powerful than the atomic bomb that hit Hiroshima. Hmm. I mean, just imagine that. I know in the Hebrew, when it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, it talks about them being overturned. Just imagine a city that's standing at one moment and the next moment it's completely upside down. Hmm. And imagine, you know, we, we talk about uh, sulfur raining down from heaven, or if God used natural means like a comet. I never thought of that. Yeah, a comet could have been the fire of God from heaven too. Yeah, but just that scientists have found that and, uh, you know, a thousand times worse than an atomic bomb. It it may or may not, yeah, it's, uh, uh, be the exact thing or, right. or it does, doesn't prove anything uh, or disprove anything, but uh, it's interesting to think about. And to think about, this is the warning that Jesus gives. As bad as the destruction was for those people in Sodom and Gomorrah. You will, you will, you will rather wish yep. you had lived in Sodom and Gomorrah than in a town that rejects the apostolic teaching. Exactly. That is, that is kind of scary. Um, uh, I, I always, I, I didn't always think of this, but recently hearing a sermon on this, um, it struck me that uh, verses 14 and 15 um, teach us a lot about fellowship principles. Oh. That uh, when we think, well, it's okay if we uh, kind of show a little bit of unity with people who differ with us in teachings, uh, and, and really, oh, you know, the Wells is so strict with their fellowship practices. Uh, you know, actually, no, who, who was strict with his fellowship practices was Jesus, mm. because he said, uh, I don't even want you staying connected to the dust from that town. I want you to disconnect yourself from the dust of that town from your feet. Uh, and and that, that, that says something about uh, fellowship practices. And then verse 16, Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Well, thanks a lot, Jesus. <laughs> and that's a verse that is always in my mind as I continue to write this book on Christian resistance, constitutional disobedience, and non-compliance. That if we as Christians find it necessary to do this, then we need to be studying things shrewdly like snakes. But whenever we're acting, we also need to remain as innocent as doves. Uh, and that, that's a tough thing. But you know, that's the, that's the verse that sticks in my, my mind as I keep writing this is we want to be shrewd as snakes. We're using scripture. We're using the gift of human reason. And yet, if, we, if it comes time that we have to resist, never rebel, but time to resist, we always need to be the ones that are pointed out as still being innocent. And that's going to be a hard thing. Yeah. Uh, shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves, uh, basically is calling you to follow uh, a narrow Lutheran middle road, yeah. which was the name of a book it was. by and, a German teacher that I had yeah. once. Yeah. And you know what I'm going to be writing about, too, is we need to go on the offensive. 
not offensive with uh, weapons of of man-made war, but weapons with the the weapons that Jesus has given us in Ephesians six of the sword of the gospel, the shield of the spirit, and so forth. But too often we have been we've acted like sheep and just done nothing, and not gone off, gone out, and been and uh, gone on the offensive with the gospel. Now, sheep, sheep are not uh, typically predatory animals, are they? No, except for the ones that we raise in our farm that always try to hammer me in the rear end with their heads. But other than that, no. Uh, I, I guess uh, maybe another thing, and this isn't going to be terribly uplift, uplifting, but uh, <laughs> verses 21 and 22 says you're, you're going to have divisions within family members. Mm. And then uh, the crazy thing is verse 34 and following, where Jesus says, uh, guess what? I am causing those divisions. Yeah. I am actually bringing a sword, not peace. I am splitting apart families. And um, uh, r- really what this is saying is, it, if you say that you are a follower of Jesus, um, he, he wants everything. He, he does not want half-hearted discipleship. Uh, he has forgiven you all of your sins. He has earned for you eternal life in heaven. Uh, that is yours for free, no matter what. Um, and and uh, now he says, follow me, and it's going to be a painful process. And so we need to remember that many are going to reject the disciples. Many are going to reject our gospel proclamation. But... Many are going to receive them. Many are going to receive us. And this should encourage us as we continue to go out and do evangelism work. Because whenever someone uh, receives us, we rejoice because he or she will receive the same reward we're going to receive. Joy in God's kingdom and an eternal inheritance with God. Uh, I'll just end then by saying uh, I think there's some encouragement then for our, our lives of sanctified living in verses 41 through 42. Uh, for 40, 41 and 42, 40 through 42, excuse me, 40 through 42. Um, Jesus says that you receive a reward and that's not talking about uh, eternal life in heaven. Uh, that is something he gives for free. That's not something that you get as a, a compensation for sacrifices that you've made. This is actually an incentive above and beyond that uh, Jesus says, you will, you will, uh, there are blessings that I offer. I don't have to do this. I could just say, uh, suffer these things because I asked you to. But he is so generous to us that he says, I'm going to repay things that are taken away from you uh, when you sacrifice them for the sake of me and my kingdom. Um, and, and that can be very motivating when you think about uh, the hardships that Jesus asks us to suffer for following him, that, that he, also, he doesn't just give you eternal life through forgiveness in his blood, but he also gives you rewards. He gives you uh, benefits. It, they might be things here on this earth, uh, but they also might be uh, blessings in the next life. Uh, whatever, they, whatever they are, uh, they're by grace alone. And as Jesus says, amen. Amen, we're never going to lose that reward. So we're staying in Matthew for the rest of October. Uh, So for the rest of this month, I'm going to stick with the nicknames with the heroes and villains in the Flash universe. That's why I wore this t-shirt today in your honor. There's a lightning bolt on it. Yeah. This is Pastor Zarling with one of Flash's greatest enemies, Reverse Flash. (laughs) 
Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.